James chapter 1. We just began, we, we're, we're moving systematically through the New Testament, finished the book of Hebrews a couple weeks ago. Pastor Bob started the book of James last week, and he covered the first nine verses, and we're going to pick up where he left off this morning. You know, if I, Bob did it, and I encourage you, go onto our website, get our podcast, or pick up a CD at the bookstore this morning, but pick, if you missed last week, catch up with us and go through this study along with us. Because I think that this study can change our lives. Matter of fact, I don't think it can. I know it can. You know, I look forward to meeting James at some point in eternity. I have a list of people that I really would like to meet and kind of, I have some questions for them. James is on that list. It's a long list. James is near the top. And when when I approach him, I'm going to do so with caution. I'm going to observe him a little bit from a distance before I make my move because I kind of want to get to know a little bit about him because my impression of him is to to use one word to describe him would be that James is intense. (laughs) You ever met anybody that's intense? You know, a lot of times when I use that, that word to describe someone Oftentimes, I use it to describe some men and women in my life, Christians, spirit-filled Christians, who are living a radical life for Christ. And they're making a difference. They're making a difference in their families, in their communities, their workplaces, the church, the world at large. And there's an intensity that comes about with them. I had the privilege of of, uh, last week, my daughter our daughter met um, a a man who I've known for 20-some years who I would describe in that capacity, you know, just serious about the gospel, faithful, faithful in his call. And um, my daughter had a chance to meet him for the first time. And afterwards, we went out to lunch, and I said said to our daughter, "Um, what did you think of so-and-so? And she said, man, he's intense, intense. Well, what brings out this intensity in James? Pastor Bob talked about this a little bit last week, but we need to remember, this is important, the context of what we're reading this morning. This is the younger brother, half-brother of Jesus Christ himself, one of five siblings that lived in that household of Mary and Joseph. And his brother, Yeshua, Jesus, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He had a different father. God in the flesh that he watched grow up and then at a wedding celebration in Cana at the age of 30 begins his public ministry. And for three years, James would witness that brother and the conflict perhaps that was going on in his soul. And then James would come to a saving knowledge that that brother of his was no less than the incarnate God, the Messiah, the Savior, God in the flesh. And James, I think the intensity comes from, James wrote this letter, it's one of the first letters that, are, that is written for the New Testament the, the, in the first century church. He wrote this early on in the, in the history of the, of the first century church. And I think that James has this intensity because he wants to, to use a, a sports, you know, metaphor. He's a good halftime coach. He had a terrible first half. He missed the Messiah. He missed this incarnation. He missed the fact that he was living 
with the very God of the universe in flesh. But come the resurrection, James becomes a believer. He now, it it all becomes clear. The gift of faith was given to him and he understands that this man that he lived life for, this older brother that he sometimes quarreled with perhaps or was angry with or jealous with or we don't even know. That's why I want to talk to him about it. But the truth comes out that there's this intensity to the way James is living his life because he is not going to make the same mistake in whatever years he has remaining and he sees the persecution of the church closing in on him. He's not going to make those same mistakes that he did in the first half. He's going to live with intensity and he's going to move forward in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's going to pastor us, shepherd us, the church, still relevant to this day, on how we can move, as we looked at last week, from immaturity to maturity, to a fullness of grace, to a holiness. I hope that word doesn't scare you, but we're called to be holy. We're called to be more like God. And James provides for us very clear steps to take towards that holiness. He's intense. He's unrelenting in his moral focus. He takes God's commands seriously, and he makes our unholiness, our sinfulness, he makes it clear, shines a light on it, and doesn't make any excuse for it. He says flat out it's inexcusable for us to live that way. If our goal is to receive the crown of life that James talks about here in the passage we'll read. So let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 9. Read down through uh, verse 20, and then we'll come back and we'll kind of analyze and take away some things that we can apply directly here today. James says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, verse 9. But let the rich in his humiliation... Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no one, for no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass and its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. I'm going to come back to those two verses and help you make more sense of them in a minute. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation... For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say that when he is tempted, that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when it is full grown, when, I'm sorry, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. We're going to look at this cycle of sin a little bit more in depth. Desire conceives, gives birth to sin. This is all in verse 15. And then sin grows up and it brings forth death. Now that's a truth that we know all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at that. Verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation. There's no shadow or turning. Of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be 
a kind of first fruits, a testimony, the very best of his creatures. Verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, last week, we looked at trials, and we said, Pastor Bob made it clear, and I agree with him, that there's three places you can be in life. Right now, this morning, you are either right smack in the midst of a trial. We had an example here this morning, Matt and Keeley, to give birth to twins, and right away told that there's, there's some concerns with your daughter, and a trial began. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this week you got laid off from a job. Maybe this morning you've got a diagnosis. Maybe this morning you received news from afar that has put you right smack in the midst of a trial. That's one place you can be. The other place you can be is that you're, you're kind of coming out of the trial. You're starting to move through it, and you've gotten through the worst of it now, and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you can feel your spirit lift, and you can kind of feel the weight come off your shoulders, and you're beginning to move forward. You're coming out of the trial. And then the third place is, if you're not in one or two, you're about to go into one. I hate to be the bearer of good news this morning, but that's the reality of life. Those of you that have lived life know that I'm telling truth. Bob gave that message last week. This, this week, I sat down with a young man, and he said, Steve, I heard Bob's message on trials on Sunday, went into my office on Monday, and I was laid off. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but that's the reality, right? That is what we face. So how do we endure those trials? Well, I want to put a, a, a chart up here on the screen for you, and we want to look at the desirable way to proceed through those trials. What, what, why are trials allowed in our lives? Why do trials come forth in our life? They produce testing, which produces perseverance, which leads us to maturity. It grows us. It grows us in our faith. It grows us in our character. It makes us able to help those that are coming on behind us that are about to enter into some of those same trials. Now, where James changes gears here this morning is he said this can go a different way, though. Because that word trial in the Greek, the same word is used to, to, to translate into English for temptation. Same root word. So there's a very subtle. But James says, listen, when that trial comes, you have to resist the fact that along with that trial can come temptations that result. And we're going to look at that. Those temptations, if you give in to them, will lead to sin. And that sin, it's a, it's a principle of truth spiritually. That cycle of sin will lead to death. Spiritual death, perhaps even literal death. And we're going to look at that. I'll prove that out to you this morning. So this is the way it can go. So we're in this transition here. We need to, we're going to talk specifically about how do I keep these trials from leading me to a place of sin and death, spiritual death. Now, I said that I'd come back and I'd explain verses 9 and 10. I think this will help give you some illumination and some context into this, what James is talking about here. Because he, he compares two people. He compares two brothers, in other words, both in the church. 
And he, he compares one of rich, a rich brother, in other words, one of means, money, resources, the ability to kind of buy his or her way out of troubles, right? Some people believe that that's how you avoid, how you, how you get through trials. The more resources you have, the bigger debt, you know, bigger debt, uh, credit limit you have on your credit card, the more trials you can buy your way out of. And then he says there, he compares the, that person to the lowly brother, the one of, of lesser means, and what he says there is, listen, you both need to glory in the fact that at the cross of Jesus Christ, everybody is brought low and everybody is put on equal ground. The cross of Jesus, at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, it is the most equal place in all of the universe. There's no rich man. There's no poor man. There's no white man. There's no black man. There's no Asian man. There are just simply equal creations. The cross brings that equality. And James is making it clear here, listen, don't worry about that rich man. In your temptations, because the trial that James, I believe, is talking about specifically here is the fact that through the persecution of the church in this first century, these were Jewish believers. If they followed Christ, they were taken out of the Jewish community. They were excommunicated from everything that they knew. James is a Jew. He's a, he's a law-keeping Jew, by the way. Devout, serious, saved by faith. Understanding that the law no longer saves him, Jesus Christ saved him. But he still wants to live a life pleasing to God for this, this fullness of life, this holiness and fullness of what God called him to be in the world that he was left in. But James is saying, listen, those of you that have lost your jobs because you followed Christ, those of you that have lost your family because you followed Christ, those of you that don't no longer have a home to live in because you followed Christ, those of you that can no longer even go and buy bread and buy a fish in the marketplace because they don't serve you if you're not a Christian, those people, or if you're not a Jew rather, those people, he says, listen, don't look across the aisle at the person that has a bigger debt limit, a bigger bank account, a bigger house, and more means. Because in an instant, all of that will be taken away also. Just as the flower fades in the hot desert sun that quickly, those resources, the thing you're putting your hope in, will be brought down. And whether you were low to begin with or you were high and brought down, guess what? There's only one place to look, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where your hope. So that's, that's the context of those verses. So James says, listen, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, verse 13, that when I'm tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, here's what we're going to do for the remainder of this talk. Three, if you're a note taker, here's three things I want you to walk away with. Number one is this, temptations are not from God. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> do we understand that about God? We need to look at that. We need to understand it. We not to need to believe any other lie. Temptations are not from God. Are they real? Yes. Are they in our ear all the time, in our eyes, in our life all the time? Yes, they're not from God. Number two is sin follows a very predictable process. 
It's almost like a law of gravity. There are spiritual laws that you cannot violate, just like you can't violate the law of gravity. You can't violate these spiritual laws. There is a predictable life cycle of sin, and I want you to understand it. It's beautifully illustrated here, and I want to look at two other places in the Bible. So you, whenever you see it, you'll be reminded of how you need to guard yourself. And lastly, God, number three, God will always, always provide a way out. And James is going to address specific areas of temptation in our lives having to deal with our anger response when we're mistreated and we're looking for something that we think we deserve. He's going to address that specifically because typically it manifests itself, first of all, in our speech and the way we react in our anger. So we'll look at that. Number one, temptations are not from God. Look at what James says here. He says, do not be deceived, verse 16, my beloved brethren, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights, he uses, very interesting description James chooses here, with whom there is no variation or shadow or of turning. Now think about this, the, the God of, of heaven and earth, the creator of the stars, the moon, the sun, the creator of light. He is light himself, but he brought light into this universe that we live into. And we can watch a star or the moon or the sun. We can watch it for the sun from morning to evening, right? We can watch the moon from evening to morning. We can watch the stars from winter to spring. And guess what? They all shift and they all change. Moon looks different as it rises than it does when it's straight overhead, and it looks totally different again as it goes over the horizon. Sun does the same thing. Stars change in the sky from season to season. Everything shifts. All this light that God brought into our world, it all shifts. But there's nothing that shifts about God. There's no variation in him. He's good. He's good. He's good. Oh, yeah. He's good all the time. Unchanging in his love, his grace, his mercy, his long suffering. There's nothing about God that ever shifts or ever changes. He's not out to trick you. He's not out to deceive you. The fact is, he is light. His word is light. This, this truth, he brings word to us, this, this word of truth, of righteousness. It's, it, it's nothing but just this blasting light of illumination that if we measure things in our world against the light of God's word, it eliminates shifting shadows. It eliminates darkness. It eliminates things that are twisting and trying to deceive us. Because when you look up here at verse 14, look at the words that are used. When each one is tempted, he is drawn away by his own desires. He and enticed. You know what those words we would use those for in today's English? Maybe something that would relate to a fisherman or a hunter. That would be lures and bait. <laughs> what, what, James, what James is saying, listen... God provides so much light that you can see that on the end of that monofilament line, there's a lure with a hook. And if you bite it, the devil's going to sink it right into your mouth and he's got you on the line. These are the same words that we would use to, to trap game, to draw in our prey, 
to lure in a fish. James says there's none of that with God. You're perfectly illuminated in in the light of God. There is no deception. Nothing that tempts you is from him. It's from the one who hates you. The one who's out to deceive you. The one who's out to lie to you. See, it's, it's real. You're in a spiritual battle. And you, if you don't acknowledge that, you're, 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 you're just kidding yourself. But there is an enemy out to destroy you, to lure you, to deceive you. God is a revealer of truth. And he's out to give to you, not take from you. Second thing is this life cycle. James beautifully portrays it here for us in verses 14 and 15. Look at, look at how this cycle works. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by, and underline this, his own desires. Then, so that's the first, that's the first part of this cycle, desire. And James and others in the scripture use a Metaphor of like the birth cycle. There's desire between a man and a woman. That desire leads, in this case, to a conception. It says that desire is conceived, and the product of that conception is a birth. It's sin. And that sin grows up, and look what it becomes. It bears forth death. Bears forth death. Eugene Peterson in the message translation puts it this way. Listen to that verse in the, in the message. Lust gets pregnant, has a baby, sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. Pretty plain, right? That's the life cycle of sin. This is, this is a process that you need to understand so that you can break the cycle. It all begins back in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. And if you're not familiar with the story, I encourage you to go back there and read Genesis chapter 3. The sin, the original sin of man and woman in the garden. Because Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the believing the lie, here, here, was the, here was the root of it. The woman believed the lie, what? That God was holding his best from her. That's the great lie from the beginning of the foundation of the earth. That God is withholding his best from you. And it's a lie. He's a good, good God. He wants nothing but to give you blessing and to see you grow in the fullness, the abundance of life that he's provided for you. But no. Living in utopia, living in this garden of Eden, living in this perfect environment... Nothing but freedom all around. Every tree that you could eat from, everything that you could enjoy. Satan gets in the ear of the woman and says, you know that God is holding out on you. What do you mean? (laughs) Look, there's that tree over there. He said you couldn't eat from it. Oh, no, I can't eat from that because he said it would would bring death. Oh, come on, you're not going to die just by eating from that tree, are you? And we get what Paul Tripp, I think, is where I first heard it. We get fence face. Anybody ever have fence face? Here's what fence face is, right? You have nothing but abundance all around you, nothing but goodness all around you, all the things you can enjoy. But instead, we take our face and we push it up against the fence 
and we look at the one thing that God says, no, that's not for you. And we walk away with fence face. I have it quite often. <laughs> that's where the lie started. God's holding out on you, woman. And then Genesis 3 says that the woman saw, same cycle here, saw, desired, took, and ate. Then her husband follows. And then her husband compounds the cycle, adds two components, lying and blaming to that same cycle. Death results. Awareness of their sin. They understand now that they're naked. Understanding the evil that's within them now. They hide from their maker. God walking in the coolness of the garden in the morning. Where are you? Calling out, where are you? And those words, where are you, echo. They echo down from eon to eon to eon to eon. And this morning, there might be somebody in this room and you hear an echo. It's God's voice calling out, where are you? And probably much like the woman and her husband, you're hiding this morning. You're hiding because you know that God sees the, the evil in you. He's a holy God and you're hiding. And at that point, death enters into this cycle. Because in order to draw the man out in, in Genesis chapter 3, God had to slay an animal. And he provided for the man and the woman a covering of animal skins. Death was brought in. First time we see it. The first sacrifice came to cover their sins so that they would at least draw out so that God could see them again. And that's how it is with his son, Jesus Christ. That he would come and provide a sacrifice, not of animal skins, but of his blood to cover us from our sins. And make us clean so that we can be in relationship with God. This sin goes through. Write this verse down. I want you to, I want you to read this later on. It's in Joshua chapter 7 verse 21. Joshua chapter 7 verse 21. Again, let me just read this. This is amazing. There's sin in the camp. Joshua is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. They've attacked Jericho and were successful. They get to the town of Ai and now they're... They're, they fail miserably and many soldiers are killed. And Joshua cries out to God, God, what happened? And God says to Joshua, I'll tell you what happened, Joshua. There's sin in your camp. Well, what do you mean? Somebody has taken of the spoils of war against my commandment and they're hiding them. Joshua goes through a series of using lots to try to determine, like we would use dice, determining of who the 12 tribes was guilty. They pick Achan's tribe. Then which family in Achan's tribe was guilty? They pick Achan's family. Then which man in Achan's family was guilty? And they roll between Achan's tent. They single Achan out. And listen to these words. Joshua says, Indeed, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make a confession to him. Tell me what you have done and don't hide it from me. And then Achan says this. This is what I want you to read. Look at this cycle of sin. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. Here it is. 
When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of gold, I'm sorry, of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 15 shekels, I coveted them, I took them, and they are hidden in my tent, beneath it, buried. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. The cycle goes on and on and on and on and on. King David would be on the rooftop when he should have been leading his men into battle, and he looks down to a young bathing beauty named Bathsheba, and he sees, he coveted, he took, he hid. Bathsheba's husband's killed. Their child from that conception died. Achan and his family were stoned to death. All symbolizing what happens, the death that comes in. We die spiritually when we're in these places with God. Listen, please hear me. This is, this is, this is the, in, I, I'm assuming that you're walking in relationship with Christ. Your sins are covered by the blood on, of, the, of Jesus Christ on the cross. You've, and if you believe that, you enter into eternal life. But there is a progress in your life. You can be saved, but still dying spiritually. Where God has so much more for us. And that's what James is talking about here. So this cycle of sin is one we need to understand. Lastly here, we need to understand that there's always a way that God provides for us to get out. He doesn't tempt us. And if you're, if you're a Christian that's been in church for a while, you've been discipled well, hopefully you know that you can draw upon a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. If you're a new believer or if maybe you've never heard this verse, please write this down. It's so important that this is in your toolbox of things to walk a life holy and worthy of God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this, No temptation has seized you overtaken you except what is common to man but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear but with the temptation he'll make a way of escape thank you that you may be able to bear up under it listen I believe James witnessing the life of Jesus Christ his older brother understood that God was at work. And he understood that, and he now is taking that in the fullness of his faith. He wants us to grow in that truth. James recognizes that when we're going through trials, those trials we talked about last week, the trials that maybe you're going through this morning, when we're in the midst of trial, they stir a lot of things in us. They stir fear. It may stir self-pity. It may stir envy and confusion. And it especially can stir anger. Anger. And anger is a place where the enemy loves to grab onto us and just pull us down. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about anger and how to avoid the sin that can come from anger. James is going to warn about this 
in so many ways. You're going you're gonna to get <laughs> verse after verse, chapter after chapter about how we control our tongue. James is known for that and the, the damage that comes into the world when we do not control our tongue. Almost daily as, as a pastor, I see the value that good listening has for the church, for its purity within and for its mission without. When disagreements occur in the church, over and over I've seen great damage, on the other hand, that can happen to people, to relationships, and to the effectiveness of our ministry as a body when we are quick to argue our positions, when we're quick to defend our views, and when we're quick to push our opinions. And that's me, <laughs> especially in criticism, right? Right away, I want to defend. I want to argue. I want to I push back too quickly. But man, I've seen what great good can happen when we discipline ourselves to postpone defending our views. When we postpone judging others' views and we concentrate on living, listening rather, and giving our full hearing in order that I can understand the other side of a conflict. We usually find the conflict more easily resolved when we do that. Good listening is a protection against dissension, and it's a protection against sin being conceived. It's like birth control for that sin cycle. James goes on here and, and makes this clear. Look at verse 19 and 20, the end of what we read this morning. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. That's why we were given two ears and slow to speak versus one mouth. Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want to put some verses up on the screen for you and then give you an action plan this morning. Ephesians 4.26 says it this way. Paul to the church in Ephesus says, be angry. You know what? I can follow that verse. <laughs> I've never had a problem with being angry. And we all are going to be angry when our rights are violated, when we see the rights of others violated, when we see people mistreated. Hopefully you're more angry with self Right, or, or, I'm sorry, righteous anger than you are a self-righteous anger. So where anger is a response, it's an emotion. We all deal with it. Maybe you're angry now because I've already gone a little bit longer than you thought I was going to go. <laughs> so be angry. But hey, don't sin. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, address it, where that anger's coming from. Relationally address it. Listen more, hear the person, and don't give, because in doing so, you will, you'll chase the enemy away. You'll, 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 you'll shake him off. But if you let your anger quell up into sin that you begin to get enticed in and start to walk in to you know, defend yourself and, and self-righteousness, right away you give a place. One, one version will say a foothold for the devil. In other words, he gets on you, gets a hold, and not only that, but it's a good hold. You ain't shaking him off. 
So let me go through a couple verses in Proverbs and then make a point for why Proverbs is so important in our lives. Having to deal with anger. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. You know these guys, these gals. They're just looking for a fight. But the slow to anger, the one who controls, he calms a dispute. Look at this next verse, Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. If you were here on Thursday night for our Q Commons, you heard David Brooks talk about this verse and how it changed David, or I'm sorry, General Eisenhower, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, how it changed his life. When Dwight Eisenhower was 10 years old, his, he didn't get something he wanted. His parents said no, so he went outside and in his anger started punching a tree until his hands were bleeding and raw. His mom came out and said, Dwight, you need to go to your room and calm down. And he was up in his room, and his mom came up a little bit later and read this proverb to him. And at the end of his life, President of the United States, the leading general that delivered the world from fascism, led us to victory in World War II. At the end of his life, he said this was one of the most significant events in his life that his mother taught him that proverb in the midst of his anger at 10 years old. Lastly, this proverb, 1528. It's a personal favorite of mine because a lot of times I can open my mouth and get myself in a lot of trouble. Or, as this proverb says, I just simply don't have an answer. And I just need to, some people that are close to me joke, they say this is going to be like my life verse is, hmm... I think in Hebrew, that's what the heart of the righteous ponders and answer. That's in, in Hebrew, it was, hmm. Because a lot of times I'll get asked questions that, listen, I'm angry and my, my response is going to come out angry. Or I know that my answer is probably going to provoke anger. Or sometimes I'm just not as smart as you think I am and I don't have an answer. Right? So I'll just say, hmm. But sometimes that hmm is better than another proverb says, opening your mouth and letting them realize that uh, you are a fool because you don't have anything to say. <laughs> proverb says, keep your mouth shut and they think you wise. Hmm. Listen, I got a confession for you. And I'll, I'll end with this and give, give you some points that I hope will, will, will help you. I'm a recovering you know, like as you have recovering alcoholics that can give you a date of sobriety, I am a recovering angry man. And I can point, just like an alcoholic can point to a date of sobriety, I can point to an event in my life that God changed me in this, and I'm still recovering. Just like an alcoholic will crave a drink, there's anger that wells up in me, and I want to lash out. About 21 years ago, so we had already started this church. I'm a leader in this church, pastoring here, you know, and I'm working. Bob and I were both still working full-time in the marketplace, and I led a, a shop of technicians in a power plant. And I was their exempt supervisor. I had a shop of about 30 IBEW union workers, men and women. And every Friday, it was my responsibility to come out and give a safety meeting 
And if it was the first week of the month, we did this. The second week, we did that. Third week, we did this. Fourth week, we would hear safety issues from the shop. What concerns did they have that needed to be addressed by management? So I opened the floor up, and this young man that worked for me, um, he starts to voice a concern. And in the way he voiced it, he embarrassed me. And he took a shot at me as a person and my leadership. And I took it personally. There was a little bit of union management contention in the room. I took it personally. And my anger was out of control. I didn't swear at him, hardly raised my voice, but I cut him down with my words and humiliated him in front of his peers in the room. Big man, right? Powerful man. Your pride got hurt, felt like you had to defend yourself, and you lash out and just cut with words and just leave a guy bleeding. I walked away from that meeting. I walked back into my office, and it was in the heart of a power plant. It didn't have any windows, thank God. I closed the door, and I just started weeping. Because the, our God is a gentle God, but he can't tolerate sin. And he spoke conviction into me. And the voice I heard, it was not condemnation. There's no more condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. But the Lord cannot tolerate sin, and he convicted me right then and there. And I kind of heard something like this. You feel big now, Steve? You feel like you got your rights now, Steve? And I just repented, like, Lord, I, I was weeping, uncontrollably weeping, like, God, I'm so sorry. I hurt you. I embarrassed you, Lord. I'm a terrible witness for your name. And I hurt one of your creations. And then there was a, a knock on my door. I kind of wiped my face and the snot off, and I'm trying to get control again. And I'm like, who is it? It's Liz. She was my secretary. She goes, can I come in? And Liz was a Christian. And she, I said, yeah, come on in. She goes, how are you doing? I said, not so good. She goes, you feel like a big man now? <laughs> Sometimes it takes somebody else to speak the Holy Spirit, too. You feel like a big man? I go, Liz, I feel like I'm going to throw up. She goes, well, you're an angry man, Steve. And you need to do something about it. And that day was the day I got anger sobriety. I'm still working on it, but I want to give you three things that I think could maybe I related to you this morning. And here it is. This will be real quick, I promise. Number one, reduce the number of angry voices you're listening to. Right now, just, you, just need to, you just need to change patterns in your life and stop listening to angry voices. Maybe you need to turn off radio stations, turn off TV channels, and instead replace it with worship stations, Christian radio, CD, you know, playlists that are full of praise music. You need to get, you know, change your social media habits and, and, and the voice that, that you have there and the voices that you're listening to there. That's number one. Number two is you need to take a daily vaccination of Proverbs. Daily vaccination of Proverbs. I gave you just three this morning, four this morning maybe. 
But there's 31 chapters there, and you can read a chapter in five, ten minutes most times. And through the chapter after chapter, if you were to look at my devotional Bible, it is highlighted with everything to do with anger and speech and self-control. Anger and speech and self-control. And if I'm taking that daily vaccination every single day, then when I go out and I get into these situations that provoke this anger, I'm much more in tune to what God would enable me to do through the power of the Spirit. And then lastly, just change your listening posture. Here, this is real simple and it seems dumb, but I got to share this with you, right? We all know this. This is not listening. This is, I want to fight you. Sorry, you are making me really, you are making me really mad. You're making me really mad, right? This is, I'm listening. But I want to take it even a step further. Somebody shared this with us, and I, I think it was with our staff, either a video or something that we watched, and it's really profound. It's simple, but it's profound. When you, especially if you're sitting at a table, maybe you're standing at a customer service counter, um, do this with your hands. Turn them upside down, up, right side up. Put your palms up. Take a breath. Because palms up says what? I want, give to me. I'm ready to receive from you. And if I consciously do this, it just, that, that act is telling me, yeah, that feels really weird, but you're taking a step towards receiving. I can do this in conversations with my wife, with my children, with coworkers, at a customer service counter, at Home Depot, wherever I am, that I might be prone to anger. Sitting in traffic, if you're not moving, you don't have to have your hands on the wheel, this is a good way to be. Right? This is not. So that's simply changing that posture can help. Here's another thing that's not listening. Right? That's not listening. And, and so we, we, need to, we need to get rid of that if I'm serious about listening and entering in. Dave, Dave Wiedis of Serving Leaders, who's done a lot of ministry for us here as a church, has a paper that he uses. It's called Incarnational Listening. And I just love the very concept of it because the God of the universe did what? For you and for me. The God of the universe left his throne in heaven and entered into our world. So incarnational listening means that I leave my righteous throne of how important I am and I enter into your world and try to understand just what it is that you're going through. And if you do these three things, I think it can change your life. Because I think I'm not the only one in this room that's either recovering from anger or needs to recover. Would you stand with me this morning?